so much for having me today, guys. It's been a real privilege to be here, um, to get to know some of you a little bit better. Let me pray for us before we start. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can come together as your people to reflect on it now. Uh, please continue to work in us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm assuming that most of you, maybe not some of the younger guys, but um, most of you would have heard of Stephen Bradbury. Yeah, we got a lot, yeah, okay, lots of people nodding. Um, if I said, you know, he's done a Bradbury, you know what I was talking about. Well, Stephen Bradbury was the most unlikely candidate to win the gold medal in the 2002 Winter Olympics 1,000-metre speed skating final. But he did. Now, I'll, he was more than just an unlikely candidate, and I'll tell you why. Um, about 10 years before that, he was skating um, in a race, and he actually fell over, and another skater went to jump him, but his one of the skating blades actually sliced through both of his thighs and he there on the ice um, basically lost four litres of blood and thought he was going to die. Now, your legs are pretty important to a skater. Um, he spent time in hospital, recovered. Two years before he won the gold medal, he was training. Um, this time, someone fell in front of him. He went to jump, Stephen went to jump this person, his skate clipped this person, but he went headfirst into one of the side barriers. He actually broke two vertebrae in his neck, and the doctors said that he, there was a good chance that he'd never skate again. So not only had he a pretty rough time leading up to the, the 2002 Winter Olympics, but he himself didn't think he had a chance. He didn't think he was going to make the final, and then when he did, he knew that he... he was up against three, three guys who were actually faster skaters than he was. But as you can picture it, if you, you've seen it, um, those three skaters falling in front of him on that last lap and then him cruising to get the gold medal. Now, Stephen Bradbury, he's had his face on a, a stamp, Australian stamp. He's um, received the uh, Order of Australia medal. Um, and he's got, a, he's got a gold medal, which is pretty cool. But he was the most unlikely candidate to win that gold. And then the passage today, there's another very unlikely candidate. It's the account of a person who Jesus actually points to and says, this guy, this guy here has the greatest faith in all of Israel, or out of anyone he has seen. So we're going to reflect a little bit on this little short chapter, um, this section, sorry, of chapter 7 in Luke's Gospel, and explore a little bit more about what it says about Jesus, and, and ultimately what it, it, it points to in regards to Jesus' very own mission. And today... I'm going to just really, really simply, there's only two points that I want you to keep in the back of your minds. The first one is what can we learn about this centurion? And then what can we learn about ourselves? Okay, what can we learn about this centurion? And what, we can, what can we learn about ourselves? 
So firstly, this centurion. Now, when we read this little section of Luke's gospel, we should read it and actually be astounded ourselves. I feel like I've, I had read it in numerous times and, and never quite, you know, it's, it's a story I've heard, a part of the narrative, numerous times. But we should read it and go, actually, this, is, this story is bizarre. What is going on here? Because I don't know about you, but who do you think about Jesus, you know, if you're thinking about Jesus and, and the, the gospel, gospel accounts and you think about him interacting with people, m- myself, I kind of think, well, yeah, he's hanging out with the marginalized, the, the sick, the lepers. He's, he's going to and having lunch with tax collectors. He's confronting the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But today, the key kind of character in this section is a centurion. Now, if you didn't know who a centurion is or was, a centurion was um, a title of a rank in the Roman army. Um, I think maybe equivalent to like an army captain or, or lieutenant. Basically, he was in charge or would be in charge of hence the name, Centurion, a hundred soldiers. And what we know about this Centurion is that there there was a chance that he could have been a a Roman. He could have been a Roman citizen. But he also may have been another nationality. But what we do know is that he wasn't Jewish. And if you came across the average Centurion in the the street in, in first century Capernaum, which wasn't a huge town, you would find someone who was probably pretty confident, who was obviously a leader. He could lead a hundred soldiers. He would have been a person of character, of, of integrity, just to even get the job of a centurion. He, and would have had been a relatively important person in society at the time. But with the role, he would have also been moderately wealthy. Maybe middle, upper class. Let's go with that. So basically, what we have in this story today, in this account, is a wealthy, powerful, influential, non-Jewish soldier. And what has happened? Well, he's got a sick servant or slave which shows that he's relatively wealthy at the same time. And this slave is sick. He doesn't just have a sniffle. It's not just a cough or the man flu. Okay, it's at the point where he's at the point of death. The centurion is worried that he's going to die. And the centurion cares about him enough that he seeks help. He actually sends people to, to speak to Jesus. He seeks Jesus' help. Now, I'm sure that lots of us in life have an experienced a point where we have a loved one, a, a friend um, who is, is sick, and, and maybe even to the point of having a, a terminal illness. And if you can just imagine that, or, or go back to that, that feeling of, of helplessness, knowing that this person is so sick that, that you don't know what to do, who can you turn to for help? 
you kind of think, well, if there's a doctor on the other side of the world, you'd get in a plane and fly there just for a chance that it might be able to help your sick friend. You might even plead with God. You feel hopeless. I think this is kind of where this centurion is at. So he sends some of his Jewish friends to speak to Jesus, which is weird again. Okay? He sends Jewish elders to speak to Jesus. Okay? Jews and Gentiles at the time, they didn't hang out. And as an example, um, if a Jewish person, if, a, if an Israelite actually went and hung out in a Gentile person's home, that Israelite, that Jewish person, would become ceremonially unclean. Okay? So they'd have to go to the synagogue or the temple and then ritualistic um, cleanse themselves so they'd be right before God again. But here we actually have Jewish elders who've hung, been hanging out with the centurion enough so that he sends them to go and speak to Jesus. It's a bizarre situation. Yet these Israelite elders also vouch for this centurion on his behalf. Have a look at verses 4 and 5 if you've got your Bibles still open. Um, I've got the NIV. I know you guys have got the Holman, but they're pretty similar. Um, verses 4 and 5, what does it say? When they came to Jesus, this is the elders, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Now, they state that the centurion loves their nation and has helped build their, their synagogue. Synagogue. Now, just a side note. I didn't say this this morning. Go home and Google Caper the synagogue in Capernaum. Okay? It's still there. Okay? It was rebuilt in the 4th century. Sorry, I'm nerding out on you guys. Um, but the base, the foundation, you can still see the, the stones are still there from the 1st century. It, it is the they're this centurion stone so just basing this in in historical reality for you um google it there's heaps of pictures you can go there and touch them and imagine jesus being in capernaum and this centurion amazing anyway um we have this centurion um and he's starting to sound like a pretty pretty upstanding kind of guy isn't he he's even what the jewish elders say he's invested in their community he's, he's helped build their synagogue and actually he's pretty fond of the nation of israel now i don't know if he literally laid those bricks himself or whether he paid to help have it built or he ordered his hundred soldiers to to go and and build it but it had obviously impressed these israelites so jesus goes with them yet the story takes this this turn here because even though Jesus is on his way, the centurion then says, don't worry about coming. I don't deserve you to even be under my roof. And then he says, and just say the word and my servant will be healed. And in verse 8, the centurion says, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
So we've got, just to sum up really quickly, we've got this Roman centurion, okay, professional soldier, a Gentile who's kind of invested in the community. And he's humble enough to, to state that he doesn't even think he deserves to have Jesus come under his own roof. What does Jesus say in verse 9? When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Now, if you've got your Bible open, just grab it quickly. Okay, pretty much, there's the, there's the Old Testament. Okay, if you've ever tried to read through the Old Testament, it's long. It takes a little while. Pretty much from the third chapter of Genesis. It's a story of God redeeming his people, drawing a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to back to himself. King David. God specifying to them to how to live as his people, his chosen nation. Just imagine how the disciples might have been feeling at this point when they've left their homes, their jobs, they've been following Jesus around, and then Jesus turns to this Gentile and says, this guy is the one with the greatest faith. Not some teacher of the law, not some elder, not one of his disciples or followers, not even that, that little old lady who he grew up near, who went to the synagogue daily and tried to keep all the commandments. Who has the greatest faith? A Gentile soldier. And it's even more astounding because it says Jesus marveled and um, was amazed. He marveled at him. Now the word behind this is, is that Jesus was kind of astounded. He was gobsmacked. And there's only two times in all of the, the gospel accounts where Jesus is amazed at an individual or group of people. The other time is back in chapter 4, 20, in verse 24. Just really quickly turn, turn back to it with me. What Jesus did, chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he's opened the scroll. He's read it out, a little passage from Isaiah. Um, and he starts to teach the people there in the synagogue. And in verse 24, he says, I'm going to read it out. I tell you the truth, he continues. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Both Gentiles both Gentiles, all the people, verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. This is Jesus' hometown where he grew up. So furious, so enraged, they got up, drove him out of town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. They were so angry, they were going to 
throw Jesus off a cliff because he had dared hint at the fact that one of that two of God's prophets would heal people, heal Gentiles. That God's mercy, God's grace would actually extend beyond the nation of Israel. So really, this is the most bizarre situation that Jesus states that this man is the one with the greatest faith in all of Israel. And in the gospel, if it's so rare for someone to receive a clear commendation from Jesus, then we want to pay attention. We want to have a think about this. So what was different, though, with this centurion? He believed that Jesus had the ability to heal across this Jewish-Gentile divide and reach even his slave, a Gentile slave, the lowliest of low. What Israel had misunderstood, something that they, they, they couldn't fathom, think they they were so enraged they were going to throw a man not only any man but Jesus off a cliff because he hinted that that God's mercy could extend beyond themselves that the kingdom of, of God actually breached the bounds of the nation of Israel what mattered for the centurion what what Jesus was astounded at was that he trusted Jesus and the power and his authority authority over ultimately sickness and death. He believed that Jesus could heal his, his sick servant. But what can we also learn about ourselves? Well, firstly, firstly, um, how often are we like the Israelites? where we automatically think that what we do matters. So the, the Jewish elders, they went to Jesus and they said, you know, you should sit, heal his servant because he's basically helped us. He's done some good things for us. It was works-based, really. But how often are we kind of like that where we, we look at different people and we think, oh, they're the they're super Christians or they're the really faithful Christians or because he's a, a Bible study leader, he's, you know, at this level and I'm just down here. This passage today shows us that, that God sees to, to our hearts. Secondly, God's grace extends to all people. So Jesus in, in previous chapters has, has been hanging out and uh, wandering the countryside, healing all types of Israelites um, and people. Um, but we see it also extend to this wealthy soldier. So how often, again, do we kind of, in, in a sense, you know, class people as, well, they're not as good of a Christian because they, you know, they spent this much money on their, their new car or they went on this type of holiday or they married this person or are dating that person or they have these political views or whatever it is. Yet here again is the person that Jesus was astounded at was a wealthy Roman soldier. So Jesus challenges our, our views, 
our, our perceptions. He did it in the first century, and, and he's still doing it today. And thirdly, like I pointed earlier, that the, this account points to the reality that, that God's mission extends um, well beyond anything that the local Israelites could have ever imagined or wanted to imagine. God's kingdom extends beyond time and culture, be beyond the haves and the have-nots, have beyond, beyond class and society, beyond political views, beyond, beyond nationality. This account gives us a much bigger picture of what God is actually doing in the world. Namely, calling people from every tribe and nation to, to his son, to trust his son. In Revelation 7, 9, um, John says, says this in God's, in Revelation 7, 9. He says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So again, Jesus is a global saviour. He saves the, the rich, he saves the poor, he saves the Jew, the Gentile. He's, he saves the slave and the, and the free. It doesn't matter where we're from or, or what we, we've done, how wealthy we are, where we grew up. Not one of us is beyond the realms of God's mercy and grace. We see Jesus in his own ministry, we, he does predominantly focus on the nation of Israel and he even states that himself. But we see these glimpses where, where God's, God's mission kind of extends out to the Gentiles. And we later see that, that obviously the Apostle Paul and the, the early church carry, takes that, that mission beyond the, the nation of Israel. And at one level, we have the privilege of doing the same thing. So it's the local church here at, at Mitchenbury, you, you guys are the ones who, who send out people like the Gorries. And, and support other organizations like BCA and, and Anglicare. They're, they're an extension of you guys. One sense, part of your ministry is in Nairobi, in Kenya, with the Gorries. Maybe you should have them on your website as staff members or something. But they can't do what they're doing without your partnership with them, without your prayer, without your, your support, without helping financially that's that that's astounding <laughs> so we seek to you know we 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 meet here now as as you know followers brothers and sisters and and we seek to see Mitchenbury people in Mitchenbury our neighbors our loved ones our our work colleagues colleagues come to know Jesus don't we and we also long to see Sydney come to know Jesus and in Australia start to finish up again in this account of Luke's gospel we have this servant this slave who was literally at the point of death he really there was no hope for him 
have a centurion that seeks out Jesus. And this centurion, this non-Israelite, trusts Jesus to be able to bring his, his sick friend back from the brink of death. And all of us at, at some level have been at that point, haven't we? Maybe not physically at the point of death, but definitely spiritually. Because of God's graciousness, our, our rebellion, our sinfulness have been wiped clean by, by basically his son's death and resurrection. Jesus has ultimately paid that price for us. He's defeated death, given us new life. In one sense, just like this, this centurion slave received new life as he was healed. Because the centurion trusted Jesus had the power and authority to heal his servant. We need to look to Jesus as the one with the power and authority today to not only forgive us of our own sins, giving us eternal life that starts now, but that offer is for each and every person. Well, what does someone need to be saved? They need to trust in Jesus. That's what we kind of get, that glimpse of, of that scene in Revelation where all people from all tribes and nations are gathered together around God's throne. The centurion was definitely the most unlikely candidate, or in people's minds, for Jesus to point out and say, this, this man has the most faith in, out of anyone in Israel. But it should give us confidence, shouldn't it? It should give us confidence, whether we're talking to someone next door, our neighbour, or someone at work, or wherever, that anyone isn't beyond the realms of God's mercy and grace. But thanks be to God that even the most unlikely candidates, like maybe ourselves, can look to Jesus and know that we're part of his big plan to be drawing the nations to himself. What a glorious picture that is. And we too can one day sing praises around the throne room of God with our brothers and sisters from every tribe and nation. Let me pray for us as I finish. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for um, your gospel. I thank you that we can read it and understand it and come to a saving knowledge of the risen Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, um, yeah, your gospel goes to the nations. I thank you that it isn't for one particular people group, but extends to all people. Heavenly Father, help us to be people that long to see a world that, that knows Jesus. Heavenly Father, I just pray for the church here at Mitchambury that it can continue to reach its local community. And I thank you for their, their, their love of um, seeing the gospel go out to the nations. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.